Hello everyone, I'm Mary Schuster and this is Commitment Matters. Welcome. Kevin Ninsehelser from Premier One is back today and he's talking about how to move your operations smoothly into the new market realities. You'll remember Kevin from his earlier episode and you know he's a technology guy first and foremost. But today we not only talk about technology, we also tap into Kevin's experience as a business leader, we exercise his MBA a little bit, and benefit from the aspects of his certification as an accredited small business consultant. You'll find great ideas here with regard to management and transitioning your company and staff through these changing times. Kevin gives us some great tips about onboarding and managing employees differently in this new world. He shares his insights on how things are changing and where we work and our attitudes about work and how an employer can make that go more smoothly for the benefit of everyone involved. We talk quite a bit about building a better and more resilient workforce. And yes, we do talk some tech, but it's all stuff you need to consider. Kevin points to several resources during our conversation, including a cyber summit that Premier One is hosting this fall. Links to all the information we talk about, as well as Kevin himself are, of course, included in today's show notes. And if you've missed some of our prior episodes talking E&O or cybersecurity, scroll back through your previous episodes and have a listen. We work hard to deliver you the best up-to-date content you need in today's climate. Please enjoy this conversation with the thoughtful and multi-talented Kevin Ninsehelser. Kevin, welcome back to Commitment Matters. I know it doesn't seem like it's been that long since you were here, but a lot of things are changing out there in markets. There's certainly a new mix of business going on. There are new realities on the ground. People have had a lot of changing thoughts about where they work and their attitudes about work. So we wanted to bring you back today to get an update on all of that because technology always plays a big part in that. And I suspect you have some great things for people to think about as they're recovering out of whatever mode they were in for so long. And as they start to look at some topics and trends that have taken more precedent while they were so busy heads down doing what they needed to do. Sure. Well, yeah, thanks for having me, Mary. I'm excited to be on on the podcast again, and I'm sure there's some great things we can talk about today. Well, the main thing that we're hearing about right now is we have agents picking up their head, realizing that the interest rate landscape has changed, their mix of business is changing. So they're really preparing for a post-refi era in, in a lot of meaningful ways there are some technology perspectives that they might want to take into account. So what should be on their punch list when it comes to that? Yeah, well, we're seeing certainly a big shift in the market from a technology perspective. Technology and human labor are closely tied in a lot of ways. Sometimes they compete with each other. Sometimes they complement each other. We try and facilitate both. But what we're seeing today, first of all, is kind of a, a shift in terms of employment. Shops that were doing a lot of refi business are having to start to dial that back. And so there are likely some really skilled workers on the market today now available for hire for those companies who are growing. That's good for some, difficult for others. But how does that relate to technology and kind of what we do in the industry? First of all, it's clear that the model is changing a little bit, not massively, not historically, but as we move away from that refi business, 
We know that it's important to start to establish lines of business with real estate agencies and looking for opportunities for joint ventures and looking for ways to work together with other partners or parties to bring that business in the door. It's not a flood of business like what we see with refi. And so looking for opportunities to use technology to facilitate that and make it where the title companies are desirable to work with for those third parties, real estate firms, et cetera. Well, I think that's really important. And so employing technology to get into new lines of business or new sources of existing lines of business is probably something people would be very interested in knowing more about. What are some examples of how they can use, what types of technology can they employ to get them into those different channels and visible to some different prospective clients? Right. So we see a lot of times having that personal touch, human touch, having a presence is critical to establishing that relationship and driving that business to your firm. So at the end of the day, we can rely on technology as much as we can rely on it, but it takes a human. And so using technology to enable humans to be there on site with your partners to provide that immediate step in the door, peek your head in the door and talk to that person kind of service is critical. So where the rubber meets the road, what we're seeing is a shift from technology that is a particularly security technology that's perimeter-based. Essentially, you're doing business in the office and you're doing business with other partners out in other offices. We're now seeing that converge where you can actually do business from anywhere. We've seen it during the pandemic with the work from home movement. We're seeing a transition to work from anywhere. Even if they're not working from home, that doesn't necessarily mean they want to work in the corporate headquarters, right? And so where we see that agents and employers can take advantage of that is you can send your workforce out into your partner's offices, into the places where you are trying to sell and grow your business. And being there and present has a distinct advantage, I think. So tools, products, services around that are really these identity-based security solutions, the ability to use, for instance, Microsoft 365, where you can access that from anywhere. You can access it from any device. And while you're able to do that, it also is secure, a key component. There are a lot of companies who can go out there and provide that, but if they don't do it securely, they're going to end up backtracking eventually. So we want to do that in a smart way. Well, and I want to drill down on that aspect because we have a lot of listeners who have told us that they kind of slap together in an emergency situation, a hybrid work approach out of necessity. We all know what that necessity was, but that now they need to formalize that, shore it up and go through everything from their recruiting and onboarding to, yes, where they are doing the work, whether it's at the employee's home or in a real estate office or other location. And the ability to do that has long been there, maybe not employed, but I think you're a thousand percent right when you say the one piece that has been lacking around that, that we have solved for inside our offices 
are the security components of it. So for those people who aren't tech dorks, let's talk about the difference between perimeter security and identity-based security. So really what we're looking at, and this is an overall trend in technology, not just in this industry, not just in any particular industry, but the idea that security no longer is geographical, or at least it's not primary, that's not the primary point of reference. So we're not saying, you know, if you are in the office, you have access to these resources. If you are not in the office, you don't have access to them. That worked years ago. It worked up until a few years ago for that matter. But today, it's not the modern reality. If we can no longer employ that geographic restriction, at least at that micro level, then what do we do? And that's where identity-based security comes in. There's this term or concept called zero trust, which is correlated or it's related. But it's the idea that people, based on their identity, as long as you can verify that, have access to what they need to do their job. Really, the key is being able to verify that using different security technologies, different products, always, always using multi-factor authentication. So it's that ability to determine, is this the actual person, the actual human being who should have access to these resources, to the production software, to the portals, whatever. And if that is what they should have access to and that's the right person, let's give them that access and let's use technology to deliver it. So it sounds like you're wrapping some of those security features around the sort of production whether it's a title production software or email or whatever it is, whatever they need access to, you're making sure that it's mobile, that it has identity-based security. And I think those are probably somewhat easier for people to step through and imagine without the assistance of a professional such as yourself. They can probably imagine what that should look like. Now, to get it done, they're probably going to need the assistance of, of a professional techno dork. I say that lovingly. Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. And I think, by the way, people are always surprised when two technologists get together and one of the first words that come out of our mouth is about the value of the human. That I think that always surprises them. But we mean it. We mean let the technology do what technology can do so you can free up the human to do what only the human brain can do. And that's important. But going back to the scenario. So let's say I want to send my closers out to a real estate office, either to do marketing or do closings, and they need to access something. What else should I be thinking about besides what's on their devices? And am am I doing identity-based authentication? Do I need to be thinking about what Wi-Fi I'm going to use? Or do I need to be thinking about what happens if I need to use their copier scanner? Are those points that set up some things that people need to think about? Yeah, absolutely. And that has been a big part of the shift, right? Because what we've seen previous to this is you would set up kind of a traditional office hardware setup. You'd have a printer or copy or scanner kind of thing sitting on a desk. You'd have a computer there. You might have a firewall, which creates a virtual tunnel back to your office so you can access those resources. You might even have For those of you that have heard it, a desk phone sitting on your desk that you might use. So that's the traditional model that we've used for a long time. What we see now is you need to be able to do everything or almost everything from the device that you're bringing in the door, whether that be 
the phone in your pocket or some kind of tablet or a laptop, you need to be able to conduct as much, if not all of your business from that device. Now, at the end of the day, we know that you're not gonna be able to print from your iPad or you're not gonna be able to print out of your iPad. Paper doesn't come out of there, right? But how do we make it as simple as possible to deliver that end product if it's paper or preferably sometimes if it's digital, right? How do we get that end product to the consumer or to the client or to the partner that you're working with with as little overhead or as little additional hardware as possible? So yeah, really when it comes down to it, you need to have platforms in place that you can access from these devices. Another thing that's important to consider is asset management. I think we've seen a massive amount of sprawl when it comes to the assets that companies have purchased or have sent home or have kind of deployed in addition to what they had before, again, during these past two years of the sprawl of their employees. And so now we're starting to realize, well, what happened to that iPad or that laptop that left our office, right? It can be a costly thing. And when we talk about saving money or reducing costs of technology, asset management can certainly be a piece of that, being able to track and monitor those devices and make sure that you're properly managing them. Oh, that is such a good point. I literally heard about that sort of situation last week where every exit checklist, whether it's a month-long exit time period or this traditional two weeks or right now you're done today, that was much easier to manage when you were in a physical office and you had your exit checklist and give me your keys and give me your laptop. And it wasn't that it went without hassle, but it was less of a hassle than, for example, you have an employee who's disgusted and decides they're not going to work for you anymore and decides maybe they're don't want to send their equipment back. Like they're steamed. I think some people might have to update their processes with regard to that to where you can say immediately render that machine inoperable. What should people be thinking about with regard to that? Right. Well, I think primarily we want to make sure that we're tracking those assets, that they don't disappear into thin air, which I know happens. Well, and we've seen just like with every other industry, we've seen higher than normal turnover, which absolutely has an impact in this industry and with agents. So what we want to consider, obviously, we want to make sure that we're retaining our assets that we own, the device, the laptops, iPads, whatever. But regardless of the device, back to that identity-based security, what's the more valuable thing, the laptop or the information that's on the laptop? using products that can employ DLP or data loss protection mechanisms, using platforms that you have access and ownership of your data and the ability to push that data out and also to pull it back in. And the ability to monitor your data for how it's being used has always been important. But now, especially with the movement of employees from maybe away from your organization to a competitor or out of the industry altogether, the data that they retain access to or they kept access to after they left or they kept copies of is a huge value or a huge piece of your organization that that could walk out the door. So it's critical to keep that in mind and understand how are you backing up 
your data? How are you giving access to it? And how are you able to take access away? Hey, speaking of devices, hardware, physical assets in the tech space, I know for a while people were having a real tough time with PCs on back order, servers on back order, and they were really struggling because they were trying to hire or just do regular asset renewal. And they were just stuck for weeks and sort of, we don't know when it's going to get here. It'll just get here when it gets here. And so that made it very difficult to resource plan that way. Has that improved that you guys are seeing or are people still on the struggle bus with that? What's going on? Sure. I I think it's changed twofold. I would say direct access to technology hardware has certainly improved with the exception of switches like across the country. It's hard to get network switches for some reason. That's at least in our world, that's the hardest thing to get a hold of. Right that's the now. one right now. It, it's always yeah. amazing as to what it is sort of this week. Yeah. Because yeah, it it's, seems nonsensical to, from the layperson just looking out. Right. Yeah. It's it's not firewalls. It's not necessarily computers and laptops. It's not necessarily even servers so much now. But what I will say is that the large, very large enterprise level companies who are providing cloud hosting platforms such as Microsoft, Microsoft Azure, which we work with a lot, they have no issues with hardware shortages. So that kind of leads me to the second piece of this, which is we are starting to, as technologists and as an industry, understand how to be a little bit more hardware neutral. Whereas before, we had a prescription for what we needed. New employee, we need this laptop, we need this keyboard, we need this server, we need to grow our server infrastructure by this amount. Here's the list of good printers our stuff works with. <laughs> right, right. Here's the printer driver that we're, yeah. All of that stuff is, again, back to that identity-based security. It's, it's right along with that. It's like we're now understanding that the modern approach cannot be that prescriptive. We need to be more hardware neutral and really deliver that experience as best we can, regardless of where the person is or what device the person is using, but do it securely. I can hear our listeners applauding. They've been waiting for us to come to that conclusion for some time, haven't they? Yeah, kicking and screaming, but it's <laughs> it's the reality we're in today. That's right. Sure. Well, another thing I wanted to ask you about, despite the sources of business shifting, people are still trying to hire just because of natural attrition, because of exhaustion, because of the silver tsunami, a lot of reasons, but they're trying to hire. And one of the things that they start to think about is where to fish for that talent. And I've moved from Dallas to now I'm in a very, very small town. There are 3,500 people. And I think there are two or three title companies. And there's just not a pool of seasoned people or even novice people to pick from. And so companies are starting to lift their heads up and say, what are we supposed to do about this? And I'm wondering if technology has some help there. Well, I certainly think so. It's actually my job to consider that. So what I can say and really speak in terms of our experience is that Premier One went through this transformation. So we realized early on a couple of years ago that first of all, the labor market that we're in is not abundant. And secondly, that the workforce and where they are working is shifting. We were a come into the office every day and work company. We're not anymore. 
That transition hasn't been easy at times, but it has certainly been beneficial. The problem is the same, regardless of if you're an IT company or a title company or an underwriter or something altogether different, manufacturer, you name it. And it's that you have to find qualified people who can do the work, who are willing to do the work, right? And who show up after the interview process, which is always, <laughs> well, lately is a frustration, right? So I believe that technology has many of the answers to that. We have employees all over the country now, and we are doing more work, and I would argue better work than we've ever done before. To do that, you have to really work to maintain your company culture and over-communicate at all times. So things that maybe we understood but didn't really have to focus on when everybody's in the office absolutely has to happen now. Aside from that, just deploying applications or deploying systems and solutions that can be accessed and monitored and secured regardless of where the person stands or sits is critical to opening yourself up to a national job market. And I think that's really one of the biggest benefits is no longer do I have to hire in my region. No longer do the employees that currently work in my region have to stay in my region. You know, there's been times where we've had employees who have said, hey, you know, my spouse got a job across the country. They're moving to the East Coast or the West Coast and I'm going with them. Bye. That's no longer a buy now. Now that's just a, okay, let's move your equipment to the next spot, right? Yeah. Here's the tether. Go as far as you'd like. I mean, we call that work from anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. It's not work from home anymore. People are tired of working from home mm -hmm. all the time, but they can take an extended vacation and work the few days before the weekend. That is a draw for employers. So that's what I'm getting at is if you have access to a national talent pool, you can hire potentially at lower costs than the market you're in, even though the, the revenue of the market supports it. And you might get better talent from other employers who you know, have determined that those people have to stay in the office. Well, and that's part of the lessons learned from the pandemic, right? Is people have said, I want to be able to work from anywhere. By the way, I do still want to work for you. And I am feeling more productive and more able to engage for longer periods of time because I'm not commuting an hour a day, or I live in the northern half of the United States now. So, oh, it's a snow day. I can't get out of my driveway. Guess it's a top day. Sorry about that work I was supposed to do. Good luck, manager. There are so many things and that we have learned that if we forget those lessons, I think it's to our peril. But also, if we don't realize the benefits to us as employers that come from that, to your point, you can now look for talent nationally and apply them when you hire them locally, virtually. There are so many benefits that come from that that really start to answer a lot of the questions that not only our industry realized during the pandemic, but those questions were in place before the pandemic. We just didn't have a good impetus to solve for them. Right. And I would say the other thing too regardless of the human talent that you have access to or don't have access to, we all know that the cost of that is growing. Number one cost of, of most service-based businesses is payroll. And that's not changing. If anything, it's increasing. And so we are also seeing this shift where companies are ready and willing to start investing in automation and bots and just 
looking for ways to become more efficient using technology, maybe sometimes technology that does not yet exist, but should, right? So I think we've had the luxury of relatively inexpensive and still very well-trained labor. You mentioned the silver tsunami, but that is changing, not just because of the past couple of years, but because the workforce is changing or aging out or whatever. And so now is really the time to start making those investments in automation because companies that do will be ready when the time comes. The labor market is not, we're not losing employees in droves right now, but those trained seasoned veterans that know title and understand it in and out, we realize they're not gonna be around forever. And if we don't have an answer for that, either we're gonna have to train a whole new workforce who have grown up working with iPads and iPhones and or Android, whichever way you roll. And so we're seeing now that it makes sense to make those investments. But if you don't, on the front end, you're gonna be trying to catch up on the back end. One thing that we hear from agents that are starting to contemplate this or dip their toe in a little bit, they come back with two questions almost immediately. And I'm gonna pose them to you. The first one is, how do we smooth out the onboarding process? Because we basically took our existing in-house onboarding process, which was basically, we hopefully would have a computer for ready for them on their first day, hopefully, if we planned far enough ahead. We hopefully have a template for the types of things they need access to. And we hopefully have a training schedule for them. And sometimes that's just, here's your chair, here's the phone by hook and by crook, figure it out. But sometimes it's an actual training program. But they're struggling with making an onboarding experience warm, meaningful, efficient, not something that the employee sits out by themselves for the first week or two, just sitting, filling out forms, reading handbooks, maybe watching videos. As you've helped companies transition to an effective work from anywhere program, what are some types of things that they have found are positive in that onboarding scenario? Love that question. So I'll give a couple of different answers. One is more general, and then I'll also give you some specifics on what we've done, which I think works well. I think in general, technology does not solve that entire problem. Or maybe it's not a problem, but the idea of creating a valuable onboarding experience for a new employee, or for that matter, you can extend that to new clients, right? We're onboarding all kinds of things all the time, right? But when it comes to employees specifically, it is a combination of technology and the human resources department. And if those two are not working together, that's the first stop on the road to a better onboarding experience for employees. As it relates to clients, you know, it might be the closer or the people who are in communication with the end user or the end client. Having them plugged in directly to the folks that are working with your technology is, is critical. If there's a gap there, or if those two are not working in tandem, the experience overall is, is gonna suffer. As it relates to onboarding new employees for Premier One, some things that we've done to make that exceptional, and I wouldn't say we have it all figured out, but we've gotten better at it. We have a daily 
get together via Microsoft Teams. All the cameras are on. And we have it split into departments. You can't bring you know, everyone in a large organization together on that. But you, know, you split them into small groups or departments, and you just have that face-to-face interaction. It's not in person. You can't give physical high fives, but you can do virtual high fives. Some things that you can't do in person are to uh, put out those memes or GIFs and, and really have a good time with it. You can do that in a Teams video call. But that daily interaction, I think, is key. And just really leaning into the more modern communication platforms. If you are relying on email to keep your company together as you expand your employee base nationally, it's not going to happen. You've got to use something like Zoom or Teams that has that video interaction at least. You have to have established times where people are going to get together and talk an open door policy where somebody can jump in and talk to you via Teams or Zoom. So in terms of onboarding, I think that's key is just to recreate as best we can with technology, the human aspect of welcoming someone into the organization. Well, and my ears are perking up at that answer because it also has the benefit of solving another problem, I'm using air quotes, problem that we hear about often. That tends to be exactly the type and cadence of communication that our younger career workers seek, need, want, require. And while some of that, just for its own sake, can feel a little itchy to some of us older or later career employees, I think it really helps to frame it up under the let's look at this Firstly, as part of a healthier onboarding process. And I think if you give some of us later career people that lens to view it through, it can give us a reason to get together, helps meet our objective of creating a warmer onboarding process with a better through line and better results coming out of it. It also helps those early career employees just with a rhythm of communication that they anticipate that they actually don't always get in the office environment. Right. Yeah. So I can confirm based on the usage we see, we do see folks that are newer in their career or newer to the workforce. They use these more modern collaboration solutions far more than the people who are more familiar with just that email communication back and forth or the inner office envelopes or whatever. So just the fact of of having that platform available already gives you a leg up in terms of the experience that they can expect coming in the door. But again, giving you some examples from Premier One, we used to do annual reviews and then we moved kind of crazy to twice per year reviews. Well, in a world of instant responsiveness and instant feedback, That is not enough for many people these days, regardless of age. When somebody texts me, if they don't hear back within a day, they think I'm mad at them, right? Yeah. So we have to understand that the target is changing regardless of what we want or like or are used to. And so what we've done is we've established monthly one-on-ones. So the manager will have a one-on-one Teams video conversation like this with all of their direct reports. And... Does that take time? Absolutely. 
but it takes a lot less time than having to rehire people who haven't gotten that feedback, good feedback, difficult feedback, whatever. But people need to know and adjust more quickly now. And so I think technology can, regardless of whether you're in the office or all in the office, or you have a national presence, you can use technology to make that easier. Okay, well now you keep hitting on all these wonderful subjects. So a one-on-one meeting, a lot of people have not heard of these or have heard of them but and think they know what they are but aren't sure. I will tell you, I think the first time I really heard the phrase was, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I, being later in my career, thought, what the heck? We have the department meetings. I have the conversations that I need to have with people in order to get my project done. What is this now? I thought, is this hand-holding? Is this hair braiding? Like, what the heck is it? And I will admit that it really wasn't until the pandemic and being removed to make me understand the value of those one-on-one conversations, which almost never have anything to do with the tasks of the week, the where are you at in the project. It's a much different conversation. What's been your experience with the effectiveness of those? How do you conduct those? Do you go just down a level? Do you ever do skip levels? Like, I feel like we need to give this a full airing for people who might not be familiar. Yeah, well, and and I'll be the first to say that, again, we haven't figured it all out. But this does come back to there has to be a close relationship. HR and your technology team has to be in lockstep on some of this stuff to make it work well. And so, you know, what we've done in our one-on-ones is it's fairly open door, just transparent discussion. What's going on in, in your day or week or month? We certainly have other opportunities to skip level and stuff. So we don't necessarily do that for the one-on-ones. It's really an opportunity for the employee to talk with their manager about how things are going. I think it's important too to know though that even though we haven't done that for all these years uh, up until maybe recently, it allows the employee to make micro adjustments more quickly. So I believe that there's two benefits to this that we've seen at Premier One. One is that you're not waiting six months and letting that employee go down the wrong path only to create a, a really large correction at a mid-year review. Instead, you're able to catch it early on if there's a behavior that needs to be adjusted or vice versa, if there's a behavior that needs to be reinforced and your email communication has been great, do more of that. Well, for the next five months, they're gonna be improving that instead of waiting until the mid-year to hear about it, right? So one of the benefits is that you do have the ability to make those micro adjustments and improve and have that flexibility to get better quicker in this world. That is key. I mean, you can't wait six months to change your business model if the uh, industry is changing faster, right? Then secondly, I think it just allows for efficiency of time. So instead of somebody popping into my office and sitting down and having an you know hour conversation unexpectedly, now there's a time for that. And so you know what we've seen overall is just a little bit of, of time efficiency there's a term called time blocking or time boxing, where you say, this is when we're gonna do this activity. And it's scheduled, as long as it's scheduled, it's gonna happen, right? And so you make sure you're not missing those conversations that otherwise may have happened just if you pop in the door. So those conversations are happening, they're on a scheduled basis, and when they're done, they're done. 
Also, by the way, you can record them, which is great. HR loves that, by the way. So it's it's a good way to bridge the gap again. Well, and I'll add two benefits that I found after experiencing. Never mind that I prejudged it negatively. Now that I've actually experienced them upwards, so I, I meet with my boss, depending on where either of us are on the planet at any given time, but we have a regular cadence of either once a week or twice a week. And as I said, I was... <clears throat> I won't say I wasn't favorable. I will just say I wasn't quite sure what to expect. But I find a couple of things happen. I wonder if you find this too. First of all, because I know I have that time, and I find this with employees that I also reach down, if you'll forgive the phrase, and have one-on-ones with them, with me in leadership role, what I find is things that I might be annoyed about or exercised about or fatigued about, I will tend to hold them, put them on a list, and wait till that time block occurs. And you know what happens? Instead of just walking into their office and sitting down, oftentimes I'll review them after 24 hours or right before the meeting. And I go, oh, yeah, it turns out that's not that big of a deal. It turns out a lot of the negative things can resolve just with the waiting for the planned time. But also I will say a lot of the times often we don't talk much about work at all. Here's a very timely example. Tell me about your two-week vacation to Europe. We always talk about my dogs. You get some of that warmer bit of human interaction that you used to just get in the office, whether it was at the water cooler or passing the hall or in the washroom or just, you know, it's 530. I'm haven't left yet, but I've kind of packed up my desk. Let's just catch up on what's going on. So it also can provide a mechanism for some of those warmer, more positive things to come naturally back into play. It sounds unnatural because it's scheduled time, but what can happen is if you don't make the topic all about work and tasks, you can get some of that rapport back that a lot of people who love working remote still feel like they're missing out on if they're not in the office. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think a lot of what you said, again, applies not just to the internal relationships with your employees, but it also expands out to your clients. And the lessons that we've learned internally as we've grown as a company, we're able to apply those elsewhere. And just like the relationships that you have to have with the people who report to you or that you're leading, you have to maintain those same relationships with your clients. Can you do that if they're working from home or decided to go work from the East Coast or the West Coast for this month? Not if you have to do it in person. And so, again, this creates that accessibility and there is absolutely no replacement for an in-person discussion. I won't say that technology can replace that, at least not at this point. So sometimes you got to do that. We brought all of our employees together for an all-company, all-hands event at our headquarters this year incredible. One of the best experiences of the year. But that was one weekend, right? What happens to the other 362 days of the year? We have to establish some other option. And I think technology can certainly bridge a good portion of that gap. Well, and we ventured over into the next question I have for you a little bit. When people start thinking about, all right, maybe I do want to employ a a hybrid workforce, and we, we walk through the onboarding, I think we've kind of come over into their next set of fears, which is how do I effectively manage them if they're not right here, 
I'm not seeing exactly what they do. I don't know exactly what time they get in and exactly what time they leave and all of that. What lessons have you learned about managing remote staff? Yeah, I I think the good news is that it's really not that different, but we have to get better at before we knew we needed to do, but we didn't really have to do it because everybody was in the office. But just like before, just because they clock in at eight and clock out at five, doesn't mean they're working efficiently. It's a facade. You're just making that assumption, right? So again, I, I think this is for the better that we've had to get better at understanding what is actually required of this position? How do we measure it? And if they're meeting those expectations and the measurements are, are accurate and they're doing well, does it actually matter in their particular role if they clocked in at eight and clocked out at five? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Again, one of the lessons we've learned at Premier One is how to measure the key performance indicators of our employees based on their role. And we didn't used to have to do that. See them in the office, see how many tickets they're closing or see how many conversations they're having with our clients. And you can get a rough estimate that they're doing okay or not. Once you can start to measure those things, it really opens up a plethora of possibilities. Again, we use technology for that. You know, there's different products out there. You can use Power BI. You can use some of the dashboard platforms that are specific to this industry, or you can use something that's altogether neutral, right? But having the data available to you, again, through technology, and using that to create actual actionable business insights is a critical component, I think, to managing people in a remote workforce. All right. That's great. I have one other question about this element, and I apologize if it's too specific. I haven't yet heard a lot about this in title and settlement, but I think we will soon have certainly heard it in other industries. And that's with regard to sort of a conversation channel. We use Teams and we like Teams. We find it very effective. I don't see a lot of this happening on Teams, but When you hear about, for example, a software like Slack, where it's just basically an ongoing conversation, it's sort of like, sort of like the water cooler used to be, but I actually am hearing a little dimmer view that it's sort of like the the wild conspiracy corners of your office where, and as a manager, you intuitively know it when you just walk by it and you can kind of walk toward it, see if it's something legitimate going on. And typically if it's not, they bust like a covey. Where on, for example, I'm not trying to pick exclusively on Slack, but you just hear people kind of generically refer to the Slack channel and they go, oh my God, if you get in there and see, and it's the negativity that just compounds and compounds and compounds. And sometimes their company or elements of it can get away from them because there's just this unmonitored area where perceptions can sort of crater pretty quickly if you have one negative person or the absence of any leadership messaging in there, but they don't want it to be real encroaching and intrusive. So what's been your experience with that? What do you recommend people think about that? Yeah, we certainly do have hands-on experience with that, unfortunately. What I can say are our lessons learned from that is that, first of all, it's not a technology problem. Certainly, there are are mediums out there that can be used to spread information, whether it's right or wrong. And likely, 
especially when we're talking about employees, they are not going to use those mediums that the company provides, right? That's human nature understands that that's not how it works. So first of all, it's not a technology problem. I think what we learned in, in the experiences that we've had with that is that you have to be more attuned to the people problems and you can't ignore them and you have to deal with them first and foremost. Where I can speak to technology in that regard though, is that when possible, we found that it's better to engage with it than to try and prohibit it. Now, certainly when it comes to anything around proprietary data or personally identifiable information or company asset data, you have to be very strict about how that is used, certainly. But when it comes to kind of the fringe stuff, whether it's super nerdy chat thing like Discord or you're using HipChat or Slack, or there's all these communities out there, Reddit for that matter, I think I find that they tend to lean negatively. So it's not a matter of trying to change that because you won't. It's the nature of those platforms and the nature of the humans who are using them. But just engaging where you can for sure. Be willing to be a member of that Slack channel. If for no other reason to show that you're available. For instance, we have vendors in in those different communities who we work with and they're engaged in it. So if we're not getting the experience we need out of the normal channels, we might go to that fringe channel and say, hey vendor, this is a problem and we're not getting what we need. And so if they have a presence there, it's actually a good thing, right? as it relates to you know, the employer and the employee, I think it's important that managers specifically be willing to meet their employees where they're at, if they can. It's not always possible. And that's where it comes back to, man, if it's a people issue, never has there been a time where you cannot afford to ignore it more than right now. I so agree. And you've done a great job so far of kind of showing your education and experience in general business management in this conversation. And I think that's maybe something, a lesser known fact about you. I think people see you and they think, oh, technologist, technologist, but you really do have a very strong general business management background. And so I, I always like to plumb you for some of those things as well. But I know that your primary bread and butter at Premier One is with technology. So I, I do have a couple more technology specific questions. We've got the modernization of some security standards out there that perhaps some of our organizations don't know about. So what should they be following? Why? What's going on? Let's get the people some new information. Yeah, well, first and foremost, I'll start with Alta Best Practices going through that rewrite right now. I think especially given a couple of really critical events in the industry, what we're seeing is a renewed focus on how do we do better? How can our businesses be more secure? We're also seeing a trend with just being really uh, kind of rubber meets the road here with cyber insurance, where you really have to be able to check all the boxes just to even get a policy for your business, right? So as it relates to modern security standards, what we're seeing is that in the Alta Best Practices Committees, they're really starting to move forward, in my view, in the right direction. And there's just interest in the industry as a whole and making sure that we're getting that right. There has been in the past, the original documents were appropriate for the time, but 
things are changing rapidly, right? So one of the things that's critical, especially as those who are, are trying to run a business or manage the growth of a, a business that they're working in, is understanding kind of these neutral standards or best practices. So Alta Best Practices is a great starting point. Maybe outside of just the title industry, we've got NIST 800-171, we've got the CIS standards, which are these neutral bodies. CIS is certainly neutral. NIST is closely tied to kind of the federal. In general, these are some modern security standards that the technology industry as a whole has come together and said, regardless of what industry you're in, regardless of what business you're doing, these are the things that you ought to be aware of and ought to be doing to keep your business safe. And a lot of it has really come from the top down, from the federal government, really wrapping their arms around small and medium-sized business or around critical infrastructure and industries, such as financial industries like Tidal, and saying, here's some guidance that we must provide to the general population of businesses so that they understand what they should be doing. So all to best practices speak specifically to the title industry, but then a level up from that, the NIST and CIS standards, which are available out there for anyone to see. These are the things that we ought to be marching toward as businesses and also for anyone who is involved in your technology, technology vendors even, you need to have an understanding of how do they fit into these frameworks? Are our software providers, are our integrations, are all of these things that touch our data that is so critical to our business, are they following these modern standards and keeping us secure in our business afloat? Okay, so if I'm an agent, I, I go, I know all to best practices and I've heard about, say, a SOC 2 certification, which I think about with security standards. And maybe I have that or maybe I'm on my way to it or maybe I'm a super small agent and have done the parts of it that I can afford to do. So do these additional ones sort of sit on top of those as best practices that cover both sides of that equation? Or tell me how to think about them and do I interlace them with what I'm doing currently? Do they sit on top? Do I forget everything I've done and just move to these? What should I do? I believe that the SOC standards, they've gone over some revisions over the years, but I don't see them as dealing with really the majority of the most severe security threats to date. So when we're talking specifically about IT security, you must do more than the SOC audit, whether it's a SOC 1 or SOC 2, those standards are good. And they do more than just IT. It's evaluating your business practices, maybe evaluating financial. It's more of a holistic auditing process. Think of it as kind of like in terms of your doctor, it's maybe the general practitioner saying, here's in general the things that you're doing good or bad, uh, maybe exercise a little bit more, eat a few more vegetables. But then when it comes to getting more serious about something like IT security, that's where you start to jump into the NIST and CIS standards. And I apologize, I just started throwing acronyms out there. So National Institute Standards and Technology, that's NIST. So they have this standard that's called 800-171. They're updating that. They've got a revision two out there now. There's a, you know, some other numbers or other associated standards. But 
if you remember anything about that one, it's NIST 800-171. You can Google it and get lots of information. The other predominant set of standards is kind of the CIS standards developed by the Center for Internet Security. So again, you can Google it for more specifics. I'm not going to tell you I'm, I'm the uh, expert on it. But what I do know is that when you are concerned about the IT security of your business, about the technology and making sure you understand how that's working for you and how it's working for the bad guys out there, these are the standards beyond just a SOC audit that will really take your technology security to the next level. Well, and I can almost feel the eye rolling and hear the sighs of some people because it, it sounds like something else to do. And I think it's important to just reinforce what we've always said here. And I know you say all the time too, is that guess what? There's no destination called secure. It is ever evolving. You have to stay ever vigilant. And I think the good parts of what you've just mentioned are, guess what? You don't have to make it up. <laughs> there are frameworks out there that you can apply templates to, or at least take the parts that seem that they would apply to you and wrap those in. You don't have to reinvent the wheel and there's value there. Right. Well, and I think the, the biggest value that that can bring, aside from just security or protecting your business, the value that that can bring to business owners is you should have a clear understanding of where your gaps are. Everyone has gaps. We have gaps, you have gaps. And so we need to understand where are we strong and where do we need to improve? That's what those frameworks are really about. Like you said, it is a constant effort to continue to stay on top of things, whether it's security or the latest technology or automation, whatever. So having a neutral framework, you don't have to take my word for it as someone from Premier One. You don't have to take your vendor's word for it or your copier company's word for it, whatever. There are these standards that are set. And so if you can map against that and just understand where does my business fall in this framework, then at least you know where you're at today. And most importantly, then you can forecast where you need to be. Because what we always get in the habit of doing is figuring it out after the fact, after it's too late. And we need to be proactive, not reactive. That's what those standards are really all about. That's great. I'm glad you introduced them to most of our listeners. Another question we are getting with more frequency now surrounds software as a service, or people will hear about it as SaaS. SaaS solutions are taking over not only the title and settlement technology space, but life in general. And I think that we have a lot of people who have heard the acronym and maybe even know that it stands for software as a service. I don't know that they could define it in a sentence necessarily. So I'm hoping you can be serve as a bit of an expert for them on that. And let's talk about what it is, how is it different, maybe give an example, and then what should people think about it? What are some of the pros and cons of employing a software as a service? Yeah, I love the question. So first of all, um, just going to make a quick pitch here. We've got a nice long it's probably like an hour long episode on techexecpod.com, our tech exec podcast, about the differences between these different as a service things. And so I definitely recommend you go give that a listen if you really want more detail. But what I would say in general is most businesses today, not everything is browser based. 
in this world, there's the vast majority of, of things that we're working with is not necessarily browser-based. So understanding what is our reality today in terms of technology, you're going to be looking for your business to use either like a platform as a service or a software as a service solution, PaaS or SaaS. And both are good options, right? So don't reinvent your business around what particular softwares you're using just because of that. There are options all across the spectrum. But as it relates to SaaS, there are good things and bad things about it. One thing that we've started to realize is that folks who are using software as a service and Microsoft 365 is a great example. Most folks, their communications platform is a SaaS solution. Microsoft 365 doesn't live on a box in your office, right? And so what we're seeing is folks believe or maybe just assume that if it's out there, it's secure and I'm not going to lose it. And probably nothing could be further from the truth. If anything, it's in many ways less secure than that box that was in your office years ago. And secondly, you don't necessarily have the ability to recover if something is lost unless you've taken the appropriate steps to get there. And so that's one of the things we, we talk about a lot with SaaS at Premier One is make sure you understand where is that data? How is it being used? And how do you have it backed up? What happens if, if the platform goes down? How do you continue operating? We've seen that before in the industry. Hopefully we never see it again, but understand what your plan is around those key softwares or services that your business is using. Well, and I think I remember you mentioning getting a lot of questions about that. And at first, people thought you meant have two instances, say, if your title production software is software as a service, create an entirely separate duplicate thing and have that running all the time. And people thought, well, the cost of that is so prohibitive, I I couldn't even begin to do that. That's not what you mean. Let's clarify what you do mean. So there's really two key components of it. One is have a BCP, business continuity plan. Just know, first of all, what you would do if something bad happens. And within that plan, that's really the second thing is what options do you have available? What can you do if you are prepared for it? So, yeah, I mean, having two instances of the same thing, first of all, they don't stay in sync well. Second of all, it might be double the cost maybe triple the cost. There's a lot to maintaining two totally disparate systems. We don't recommend that. But there are modern solutions out there that can take that production platform and have a synced copy of it offsite. Rule of three, you want the production data or the production system. And we're not just talking about like title production softwares, anything. You want the production system as the first copy You want a backup of the production system, typically in the same environment in terms of the Microsoft world. You know, we have it in a similar Azure tenant. And then the third copy of it is offsite, right? It's in something that's not hosted within the same realm as that production data. So that rule three probably predates me, but it is critical that you evaluate that as you're considering what your business continuity plan looks like. 
And I'm sure if we said just enough to make people curious, if they give you a call, you can help them craft something, what it should look like, whether or not they purchase it from you, but you can help them craft at least what they should be looking to create within that. Yeah, absolutely. Regardless of if they're a client of ours or not, what's critical is that people just have a plan. And I always advocate that it's a simple plan. Gone are the days of a 100-page BCP. It's not necessary. It's not helpful. And frankly, it's always going to be incorrect then, right? You want something that's simple to understand so that on D-Day, when the thing happens that shouldn't happen, you go to it and you understand what is the next step. You execute. You're not thumbing through 4,000 sections to get to the right subparagraph. Yep, that's right. Keep it simple. And I've also seen from a compliance perspective with SOC auditors and stuff that they're starting to accept that that is the reality of what's necessary today. I will also make a mention to watch this space. Another question we get surrounding SaaS solutions falls in the realm of data privacy, which is emerging as a national topic and a topic in the title and settlement industry. We're going to be issuing some information on that that people might find helpful, and I'm sure we'll be discussing it here too. So if you'd like to come back for that, we'd love to have you back. But I know that that question If it doesn't come up during consideration of a SaaS provider, it should come up in the decisioning around that. So we're going to help people understand how to think about that a little bit differently as well. I would just reiterate, regardless of what platform or service you're using, understand what it is that you're doing with the data. There are companies who, or agents or organizations who are willing to accept whatever those terms are. They might go into that with both eyes open, and that's the appropriate way to go into it. At the end of the day, just don't be surprised about it. I think that's the key. Completely agree. Kevin, you always bring us a wealth of information on a wide array of topics. I know that people can often think, oh God, I'm about to hear from a technologist. I'm not going to understand everything they say. And you disprove that myth every time. So we are very, very grateful for all this great practical information you've given today. Had a blast. Thanks for having me as always, Mary. Thank you so much, Kevin, for helping us eat our technology vegetables. The kind of work you do doesn't always get the attention it deserves, at least not until something goes wrong. So it's especially nice to hear your thoughts on so many aspects of our careers and businesses. Thanks for sharing your insights. They were right on point. Until next time, listeners, for today, try to think of and implement one new way to rejuvenate a neglected relationship. Whether it's at home or with one of your coworkers, don't let being busy get in the way of a productive communication with those around you. It's important. Then grab one more idea Kevin talked about for your workplace and start a discussion in your shop about whether or not it would make sense for your team. If it might, investigate it further. And finally, schedule time later today to enjoy your favorite summer treat, whether it's a bomb pop or the peach shake from Chick-fil-A, And if you haven't had one of those yet, put that at the top of your list to arrest me. Or maybe it's a nice cold sangria or a scotch and cigar on the patio. You've earned it. Enjoy it. Savor it. Don't cut yourself short in order to do what you do. Because you and what you do really matters.